Welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. It's a Tuesday episode, so with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how you doing? Happy New Year. Bradley, your voice is incredible. Yeah, like, I know. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm not sure why, because I don't feel sick. Maybe it was being on the, the plane for 14 hours. I, I don't know. Um, the plane? I from Tokyo. We're going to talk uh, about the plane. Yeah. I, I feel fine, but how was your break? Fine. Fine, but not as interesting as yours, which is what, one of the things we're going to be talking about, because yeah. I did not go to Japan. Right, so we're going to talk about three things today. We're going to talk about my trip to Japan and kind of my impressions of it and kind of what I think is applicable and isn't to the U.S. Um, second is uh, GLP-1s in terms of both my personal experience now with it, but also the, some of the broader potential societal impacts. And third is just this fascinating story right over the break in the Times about an oligarch suing uh, his art advisor for fraud. And I want to make the case that there just should be markets like art where there should be no regulation and no legal standing at all. Okay. Uh, and a total caveat on tour. And then a proposal for how that could be applied partially to cryptocurrency. Wow. So we're going to cover a lot of different things, but we're going to go with the easy stuff first. Um, which is your trip to Japan. Yeah, and, you, and Phoenix. And, oh, right. Oh, you want to talk about Phoenix, well, too? Well, Phoenix is the, you know, obviously the Tokyo of the Southwest. So. <laughs> yes, that's uh, right. Two, two do, things do you happen. you want to start with Phoenix yeah, since two, you went two, there first? Two things happen in Phoenix that were worth noting. Okay. The first is it is the um, only place in the country right now, I believe, where there are self-driving uh, taxis. Right. You showed me that scary video. Yeah, I took a video and, and sent it to you. Um, and so I took one, uh, too. I, took one to, I went to the Suns game, and I took one to the game and back, about a half-an-hour trip. Each way, it was fucking cool, man. And and to walk just carefully through the the, the process a little bit because I, I I think most people probably have no idea. Yeah, so, so, so you just, in some you, ways you just, it's, it's like, like Uber. An, okay, it's it's the Waymo app. Waymo app. And um, you get there, it has like your na- your initials lit up on top of the. So you were just car. like at a at a the hotel. Residence. You're at a hotel. A hotel. Okay. Pulls up in my hotel. Uh, I unlock the car door with my phone. Okay. Get in and. It starts driving, and you know the steering wheel's moving, but there's no one in the um, there's no one in the front, obviously. And if something went terribly wrong, what are you supposed to do? I have no idea. In fact, <laughs> when I had a Tesla for years, of course, like an idiot, when they're like, "Do you want the super duper automated driving?" You said package? yes, 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 right. I'll take everything. I please. never once used it because. I knew that if something went wrong, I would not know what to do. Right. Because uh, my driving instincts are terrible. Right. So, um, but here's the thing my driving is so bad that I fully believe and had confidence that the car was going to be much better than if I were behind the wheel. Right. Um, and most likely, you're very, human you're like the so un American in that way. Because I feel like the American ethos is like, very confident. Like, I just need to have control over everything. Yeah, no, I'm happy to not have it. And so, <laughs> It was cool. I would say the, the most interesting thing I noticed is, you know, and Phoenix is perfect, right? In the sense it is flat. It has a lot of mountains, but the roads are very wide and flat and empty. Right. They're um, empty? Yeah, not a lot of traffic. Like you Phoenix. were driving into like downtown Phoenix to see a basketball game and there it was like... Not a lot of traffic. And, um, God, that's so weird. But So we, we make a turn, a left, onto a very big street, and all the way down at the other end, the light is red. It's okay. And as we're going down the street, about halfway, the car speeds up. I'm like, why are we speeding up into a red light? But it was because the car was synced with the lights, and the car knew that the lights were about to turn green, which they did. And so it made sense to go faster. And and what's the philosophy? So let's imagine some jackass going the other way on the light um, is trying to beat the light. Like, how does the car know that that's going to happen? 
Do you know? I don't think it does, um, but it would have to be beating the light and making a turn, right, to get an R away. Well, it depends on where they're coming from. Where they're coming from, the other way. Yeah, but in any case. Um, It does not know that, right? But I guess it has the ability to sense that and stop on a dime. Better than you do. Yeah, for certainly better than I do. So it was was a fun, cool experience. Um, It dropped us off and picked us up a little further away from the arena, I think, than a normal Uber would because they probably want it not to be near highly uh, pedestrian areas. areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it was a cool experience. And then actually just the experience, if I saw Luka Doncic, they were playing the Mavericks live. Have you ever seen Luka live? No, I haven't. It's actually one of those, like, there are guys that you just got to see play live, and it turns out he's one of them. Okay. Um, not just because, like, he was doing all kinds of crazy shit in the pregame show, like, because he's you know, also a soccer player, right? Like juggling the ball with his foot. He was making shots with headers off his head. But um, he scored 50. But what, it, you, know, you can capture the scoring on TV. What you can't capture is the passing. Right. And he's just whipping the fucking ball across the court to the open guy. And the reason that they won is all these sort of mediocre guys were scoring 15, 20 points because they were just wide open. Because Luca was doubled the whole time, and he knew how to find them, and right. he got them the ball instantaneously. And it's you can't really just focus on someone's passing on TV because you have to, they have to show it to you, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you're in the stands and that's what you want to focus on, yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah. And so I would say, it, for those of you who are like basketball fans, if Luca's coming to your town, it's uh, it's worth the splurge because uh, watching him live is special. Okay, so we have uh, self-driving taxis and we have Luca. Those are the two Who, things. It doesn't even live in Phoenix, but yes. Right. So those are the two <laughs> reports from Phoenix. <laughs> yes. Bradley, twenty twenty-three, Phoenix report. Um, and then you uh, went off to Japan yeah. with your son and your daughter. <laughs> yes. Uh, the three of you. <laughs> yes. Um, tell me. First of all, I, I, we have a bunch of things we want to chat about this, but why did you go pick Japan? Not that it's a weird or, or, or bad choice so in it any been, means, but like... I've never been. Okay. Had been the fir- the number one item on my bucket list to go okay. to. We were supposed to go to the 2020 Olympics. Oh, I we remember this, right. Hotels, flights, tickets to all the events, and then of course COVID. So it didn't happen. And so Abby's a senior in high school, and in spring break, she was doing something with her friends. So this was really at the last big vacation where I had total autonomy over what we were going to do. And I was like, I better get the Japan in trip while I can. Um, And so, yeah, we went three of us to Tokyo and Kyoto. And what was the best part of the trip? The best part of the trip to Samuel Corny is it was so such a pleasure to travel with the two of them at the age that they're at. Uh In that. That is a, that is a corny answer. It's true. But, but, (laughs) but like, but, but, but it'll it'll make more sense when I explain it later, which is, they are, especially Abby at, at 17 and a half now, um, she's kind of like way past the annoying, difficult teenager phase and back into kind of lovely Abby phase. And just she's so intellectually curious and excited about everything uh, that it was just such a pleasure to travel with her and experience things with her. Lyle, too. Now, he's a 15-year-old boy, so he's you know still very cool. Um uh, but um, too cool but, for dad, you mean? No, not just a, a little. Just in general, like maybe you know, is a little reluctant to get too excited about things. Uh-huh. Um, although he was really, he did like the whole Japanese street life and shopping and yeah. culture and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, 
the because Lyle and I got food poisoning on the trip. Uh, this seems to be a, like a tough recurring family theme. Yes. Uh, theme. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know if I looked. I lost about ten pounds on the trip. You lost ten more pounds. Yeah, I still remember. I can't remember where you were in the Middle East when you got. Du- uh, we, were in, we were in Kenya, right? And then we were in Dubai. Um, you never really recovered that way. No, you? I finally did, oh, and I just yeah. lost it again. Oh um, my god! So yeah. Um, but uh, but even with that said, um, Lyle we, was great we, too. Back up on the food poisoning. I hate yeah. to dwell on it, but what where did you get it from? So we th- originally thought it was from squids. So we went to a Japanese Italian place for lunch, and Lyle and I. Lyle's an adventurous eater. Uh-huh. Um, Abby's vegetarian, so so obviously not. Um, had the squid ink pasta, which you know a good combination of Japanese yeah, and sure. Italian. And then Lyle, uh, we get back to the hotel. There's an earthquake because there was a big earthquake in wow. Japan. The hotel is literally swaying in the way it's supposed to from the architecture of the engineering. Um, and Lyle pukes. And first, like, oh, you puke because of the earthquake. And then he kept puking. And then I got sick. And then it was like, oh, it was the squid. In retrospect, the evening before, we ate horse sashimi, Ugh. <laughs> which didn't even taste good. Yeah. Uh, so it might have been the raw horse. Yeah. Um, it might have been the squid. I'm not How sure. How much raw horse did you eat? Only one. We each had one piece of it, and it tasted bad. And I was like I, bad, bad. Like, like disgusting. Yeah. yeah. And um, You spit it out? No, because oh. the guide was like yeah, next to me, and yeah. he was so enthusiastic about it that yeah. I kind of okay. had to eat it. Yeah. Um, so, you know... Um, so that was a damper on the trip in that you don't feel good. It limits your activities a little bit. Lyle did miss a full day in Tokyo because he just couldn't leave the hotel at all. And the food generally, I don't know if it didn't taste as good or I just was unenthusiastic about eating. Um, but I would say, you know, Japan's supposed to be a great food country. I didn't have a great food experience. And it, it was that, I mean, there, was there one like incredible highlight? Like something like a, like, you know, there must have been some amazing sushi. Thing, we did. Right? So when we landed, we went straight to this sushi restaurant that uh, fourth generation, 100 years old, the tour guy was friends with the owner and supposedly they opened it up for us. I don't know if that's true or not, but they said that. <laughs> um and it was delicious. So that was really good. Um, but other than that, like, you know, we didn't have like a great, we had steak, but it wasn't like the right. delicious wagyu, life-changing steak. Um, I didn't love the izakaya. We had good soba. We had good ramen. Um, but, uh, we, yeah, we, Dutch, we made yuba. We made mochi. So that was fun. Um but I would say, like, I'd like to go back to Tokyo and try the food again mm-hmm. um, because I feel like it was me more than it was the city. And you visited Kyoto as well as Tokyo? Yeah, okay. yeah. And it's sort of like um, Washington and New York or Shanghai and Beijing, for those of you who've been to China. You know, Tokyo is this very vibrant, bustling, big city. Um, and in some ways, it's interesting the ways that it was and was not like New York. It, it was like New York in that it was very big um, and very dense, even more vertical um, than New York is, which is partly why they have less of a housing crisis than we do, is they're much better at building and, and have a lot fewer regulations around building. Um, and, you know, Japanese are very innovative, right? Whether it's engineering and technology or art and design, culture. So there's a lot of cool shit to see. Um, and we saw a, a lot of really interesting stuff. I didn't like all of it, like the 
anime arcade anime stuff and the arcades and all that to me which just felt like being in like the really shitty parts of Times square you know a bunch of that did um did lyle like it better no lyle doesn't like cd mm -hmm. so he doesn't like Times square he doesn't like hollywood um and he did not like uh shinjiko or even shibuya okay. um but um he did like the show Lyle Super Streetwear, and so they were cool because a lot of the stores he likes, like Capital and Bape and Second Street, are all Japanese stores, and so he did enjoy going to like the originals right. uh, of all of those and got some cool, cool stuff there. Um, so he liked uh, he liked that. In some ways, Tokyo was a lot cleaner and more orderly and safer than New York, and that's good and bad, right? It's good because we complain about all those problems on this podcast all the time. It's bad in the sense that it is, on the other hand, a very homogenous, repressed society. And I think some of the magic of New York is the melting pot, the spontaneity, the chaos. Um, and that leads to some incredible things. And so I, I wouldn't trade their system for ours. I would trade our mayor for a more competent mayor, because I think we've seen that you can have a New York City that is cleaner and safer and better run under someone like, say, Mike Bloomberg or dirtier and more dangerous and poorly run under someone like Bill de Blasio or Eric Adams. And so, but to me, I'd rather have New York, but with good leadership um, than have Tokyo. And then Kyoto is just this, you know, if you love history, Kyoto is incredible. And I don't love history, actually. Um, but it was interesting, but it was... What do you know, mean you don't love history? What, like, I don't, like... I uh, mean, like, going to historical sites? Yeah, or like, yeah, it's interesting, but, like, by the fourth shrine, I was like, okay, I got it. Um, <laughs> well, you made it to four, that's pretty good. You know, uh, and temples and all castles and all that stuff. Um, and Kyoto, there's, like, a rule where everything's very short. Like, there's no big buildings in Kyoto at all. Um, and so it's all very kind of old school. Um, but it was, but it's also kind of a beautiful city in, in, in many ways. So, you know, uh, I, I liked that a lot. And you took the bullet train there. We took the bullet train, which was both really impressive and in some ways underwhelming. Underwhelming. Was, but, but in a way that was because. Because it was so efficient and so normal. So efficient and normal that it wasn't like this magical experience. It was right. just like getting on a train. Right. But we went 380 miles in two hours. That's like much further than going to Boston, which takes you know four yeah, to five. Three hundred eighty miles would get you to like to Cleveland or something, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like it was, it was, was three eighty something like that. So it was incredible. It was two hours and twelve minutes. Um, but the train looked like the train. You know, it wasn't right. like much nicer than the Acela or anything like that. Um, wasn't like we. You know, the only thing from the train that I'm like, oh, we should do this is they just had these lovely chimes when they were to stop. And I was right. like, why don't we have? Why don't we have lovely chimes? Lovely chimes. That that, that one. <laughs> you seems, know, I, th I think I, it's a tough strategies campaign. Lovely chimes. That that, that <laughs> one seems seems easier. Um, but yeah, so I would say I really like Japan. I don't know if I liked it quite. My expectations might have been a little too high. Uh, so. Either. I understand that my expectations for Japan are very high also. So that makes You have been or have not been? No, I've not been. And and it's it, just like you, it's like it's kind of the number one thing that I want to do is is go. But the problem is is that I I know different from you. I have a feeling that my family's interest in mine will not dovetail nicely. So what do you think yours would be? Well, I just think I'd like to be out walking around like literally for yeah. hours and hours and hours. That's and that's the way it is always. And then, right. you know. And your family would rather do it. Well, whatever. They just don't, like I could walk around the city for eight hours and they'd be like, how about we walk around the city for two or right. three? The one thing I would say with Tokyo is you could end up just walking in very boring neighborhoods for many hours. Right. Like you kind of have to have some sense of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, um, but yeah, no, but I, I actually would like to do more of that, more of that too. The one thing I'll say is I went to the most amazing bookstore of my life. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It was, I forget the name of it, but it was a, it was the most beautiful bookstore I've ever seen. It was a bookstore, an art gallery, and a cafe all in one space. And the artworks were like intricate and beautiful. And it was, you know, mainly Japanese language books, but incredible sections on art and design, but a pretty well, good. Oh, it's like multi-story, right? Or is that no. not the one? Remember, we looked at one, like one in, in Tokyo when, when you were first opening the bookstore and we did some oh, yeah, original yeah, research. Yeah, yeah. But I, I can't remember. Think, I, I remember that one I don't know if it was that one. Yeah. Uh, Sounds Abby, like you have a different one here. We yeah. did go to an 11-story stationary store, which Abby fucking loves. Oh what was like on the 11th floor? Like what's the, what's the most out of like reach? Like printer cartridges or something. Um, <laughs> printer cartridges. You know, it's funny. Correcting the, tape? The, the, the two floors that were impenetrably crowded were the pens. Yeah, well, that makes sense. The pens. That, it, was like, it was like literally miserable to walk through the pen floor. Did you get a good pen? No. Did you get me a good pen? No. No. I don't like pens. Yeah, um, I do like pens. Abby likes pens, but right. although Abby, those were fancy pens, and Abby just likes she having likes more utilitarian, yeah, pens. utilitarian pens, Muji pens. Yeah, but but she did buy a, a wide variety of stationery nice. goods. Um, okay. So yeah, it was it was a great trip. But but you know the thing I would say again is even in those moments of like really unpleasant food poisoning, uh-huh. um, I was able to step back. I think which I was proud of myself for and say like. Yes, I feel crappy. Yes, I'm spending a, go- a zillion dollars on this trip, right? <laughs> um, you know, but... They opened a sushi place for you. Yeah, everything was like that. Um, <laughs> but it was such a good time with, with Abby the kids. and Lyle. Yeah. You said that already. That, yeah. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a stop to that, not because I, I, I'm, I'm glad for you and everything, and, and I think it's good, but we'll just leave it right there. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um the uh you ready for the hard pivot hard pivot yeah yeah um uh now you want to talk about glps and the future of the world but you th- this sort of starts with a personal kind yeah. of inspiration you want to explain sure. what that is so i think as i've talked about in the podcast before i'm sure i have i have pretty severe ocd and i take medication for it but the problem with ocd medication is because they really don't understand the underlying causes of it is it just blunts the symptoms a little bit, right? So the medication I take so that when I have an incident, it is not quite as severe or long-lasting as it would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. So it's just to try to mitigate symptoms. It doesn't in any way help with the cause itself. And then as I was reading a lot about GLPs, I kind of came across the term in some articles, compulsive thinking, which is what OCD is. And... um, you know, I think the answer is they don't quite know what GLPs can do because they invented it for diabetes and then turned out that it works incredibly well for addictions and cravings, whether it's drugs or alcohol or gambling or sex or whatever it is, um, across the board. And there was at least a school of thought that it might also be able to deal with compulsive thinking. And so I talked to my psychiatrist who said, look, I don't really know. I talked to an endocrinologist. I met with an endocrinologist and she's like, I don't really know either but there's not a ton of downside in trying it. Right. Um, and so I started it. I've done taking now two shots of Manjaro. And, and you take those, they're self-administered. Self-administered, okay. two and a half milligrams. Uh, totally kills your appetite. I have no interest in eating whatsoever. I have to remind myself to eat. Um, so that's, and that's good and bad, right? Because I, I do like food. Um, so I don't know that 
I would I wouldn't want to take this just for the sake of of losing. Well, you don't even want to lose anything. I don't want to lose. Yeah, I didn't need to lose weight. Um, But um, you know, you know, Laura Santos is she's like a happiness expert. She teaches that class at Yale, super famous, like the the happiness class or whatever. Okay, she's podcast. I was listening to her on a podcast with um, Sam Harris. You know him? Yeah, yeah, of course. The other day, and um, she was talking about the distinction between happy in your life and happy with your life. And I think what I realize is I'm very happy with my life, right? Um, I'm often happy in my life, but that's where the, the nature of OCD, where my mind instinctively reverts to whatever is wrong and bothering me and then thinking about it compulsively, mm-hmm. it's just an immediate damper on my happiness, right? And what's annoying is it's one thing when I have an actual problem and my brain is working on a solution. Right. Fine. Right. But when it's stuff that's just like, oh, this person made me mad yeah. or upset I, me or whatever it is where there's no solution to it other right. than to just ignore to, it. Yeah, just on. to get on with it, right. Um, and yet you're just replaying your head over and over again. That just causes unhappiness, right? So if, if the Manjaro can help deal with that underlying compulsive thinking, that would be a life-changing event for me and for millions or tens of millions of people with, with OCD all over the world. So I'm kind of a guinea pig here. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors say you probably take a couple of months to see if it works. It, it may, it may not. My gut is it will not. Um, because Why is I, that your gut? Because I understand how it ended up having these ancillary benefits on addictions because it was meant to deal with food cravings, and it turns out it also applied to drug cravings, alcohol cravings, other cravings. Causal thinking is not necessarily a craving, right? It's a disorder. Um, and so I don't know that it's necessarily going to apply mm-hmm. to that. The other problem is, of course, at least right now, my compulsive thinking is actually worse, not better, because if I'm thinking compulsively of whether or not I'm thinking compulsively... <laughs> You know, I'm thinking a lot compulsively. <laughs> that is a that is a, a, a definitional catch twenty two. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so a, as a result, um, and how but, do you feel? Let's. Uh, I, yeah. I know you have some bigger thoughts to, to talk about, which I want to which I want to hear. But but just as a you, you describe yourself as a guinea pig, yeah. are you comfortable being a yeah, guinea pig? Yeah, yeah. I'm super. As you know, like I'm open to all kinds of new shit. And okay. I like new ideas. I like new technology. So. Yeah, I'm. I'm very. Comfortable but with your with body, that. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Because uh, it scares me a little bit. Not, not even like, not even, not specifically for you and what you're trying to do here. But like, I have suddenly, you know, everybody seems to be like, you know, on these drugs, yeah. and I worry a little bit just about my friends. Like a couple, couple of funny things have happened, strange things, side effects, nothing terrible, like you know. But like, like, and it just seems like the embrace of them has been so like immediate and intense. So I, I would say this. I mean, I've never had to worry about my weight, so maybe I can't appreciate it. But like, if it was just that you're like 15 pounds overweight, I could see an argument for why you don't need it and you should just put in the, the hard work, right, um, instead. But if you have, you know, body type, that just there are people who you know, are just really heavy because that's their body type, right? right? And maybe their habits also aren't good, right. but they would be heavy no matter what, right. right? And therefore, they're much more likely to have obesity and diabetes and heart conditions and mm-hmm. everything else. Or if you have an addiction of any kind, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, you know, 
we know so little about how the human brain works, right? That um, a friend of mine was sort of giving me this very puritanical, moralistic argument against GLP ones, and knowing you, know, you were on it, kind of thing. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and, well, because I'm on it for this weird, like, yeah. compulsive thinking thing, so it's different than an addiction thing. Um, although I will say, the few times that I have walked by an illegal weed shop since being on this, like, zero pull whatsoever. Now, I'd already, I had managed to quit for almost six months before I started taking this, right. so I did it anyway, and I, right. didn't, I didn't need it for that. But you noticed a, di- a difference? But I did notice it. Like, I don't think it makes it, I think, think at this point I'd already kind of won that fight, so... Uh-huh. Um, but we don't know why, how, and why the human brain mainly works. And if, and we know that hundreds of millions of people struggle with addiction, right? Because the human condition is such in that there's a lot of anxiety, right? Just through the evolutionary process alone, we're inbred with lots of anxiety in order to be able to survive, right? And to, to, to spot predators and spot harm. And, you know, things that maybe aren't necessary are so ingrained in our system that we still have them. And so they manifest into different types of anxieties um, today that, you know, there may not be, you know, a lion about to eat us that you have to worry about. Um, but, you know, you still have some level of, of that, that fear. Um, and so people need a relief from it. I mean, the only thing and the reason why I smoked weed for a very long time is it was the only thing that was a relief from my OCD, right? The only time where I didn't have this sort of constant drumbeat in my head uh, of whatever was bothering me was if I smoked weed, right? Um, and giving that up. You know, I'm glad I quit smoking weed. It has been better for me in, in multitudes of ways. But now that problem is back, right? right? It didn't, right. that problem didn't go away with it like it exists. So maybe the Manjaro will help solve that problem. Maybe it won't. I don't, I don't know yet. The doctor said it, I need a few months to, to see. Um, but, um, but, you know. Do you want to move into sort of the bigger ideas? Yeah, but, um, but I would just say okay. like to the person that I was having this debate about, uh-huh. like, right. People's lives are ruined by addiction every day, and and if if there's something that can truly make it dramatically easier for them to resist substances or behaviors and practices that hurt them and their families and their employers and everyone else, like the idea of denying it to them for some puritanical self righteous notion is like cruel. Yeah, oh, I agree with that completely. I, I just worry about health effects. I don't. I don't think people shouldn't do it, or that it's bad to do it, or anything. like Yeah, that. look, yeah. it may turn out in ten years, or like it causes brain cancer. Yeah, I don't know. They always say that about things, and then well, I guess some things turn out to have really bad effects. Yeah, like um, but but I but I did, was thinking a little bit about sort of the, you know, let's say that this really scales, and a huge percentage of the population is on this, right? What does that mean? So one, um, the entire rehab and addiction industry should change and contract meaningfully, right? You just don't need nearly as many rehab centers and programs and all this stuff if you eliminate, you know, rehab is to help treat the impact of having an addiction. If you can eliminate the underlying need for the addiction because the cravings go away, um, 
that you know tremendously changes that that entire world and then more importantly perhaps healthcare costs should go down meaningfully right because this can also apply to cigarettes right so if you got rid of lung cancer and alcoholism and drug abuse um that alone would lead to so much less um diabetes cardiovascular disease cancers um, that our overall healthcare costs should go down really meaningfully. At the same time, that should increase longevity and life expectancy, which is good in a way, but also bad in a way, because unless we change the way that we define Social Security and, and Medicare, um, if people are at 65 retiring and getting these guaranteed government benefits and living to 103, um, we literally can't afford to provide that, right? There's just too many old people with too much need. In fact, Japan is in this situation. Uh, you know, I was talking to people right now where just a huge percentage of their population is elderly and the, the younger part doesn't generate enough tax revenue to pay for the older part. Um, and so, look, we're going to ha- obviously have to, in general, raise the retirement age and, and the age for eligibility for things like Social Security and Medicare, but especially if life expectancy goes up because these drugs are really impactful, they may have to go up to 75 or something like that. Um, but overall, healthcare costs should go down, which um, should make the system more accessible and affordable for people. Um, work productivity should go up, right? Just tremendous amounts of productivity are lost to um, illness, whether it's you know people who are addicts and are on the job doing it poorly or out of work because uh, they're addicted to something or people who are just physically ill because they are grossly overweight and suffer from asthma and diabetes and, and you know, all kinds of other drug, all kinds of other illnesses, um, and that makes them less productive. Um, if all of that is improved, then productivity should go way up, which should make the economy um, a lot stronger, which may make the ability to support uh, an older population greater um, as a result. Um, and then when you mix that in with AI, it could be really interesting, which is if people are more productive and AI is making us more productive, you know, maybe we hit some level of hyper growth um, in, in the economy where it's like we produce more new goods and items and ideas and products in the next hundred years than we have in all of human history combined, right? You, you could see how we could enter that phase, and that's mainly going to be because of AI, but I think the combination of AI plus GLP-1 could be particularly potent. Um, crime should go down, because a lot of crime is the result of addiction, right? So most of the drug war and drug violence, and most, most of the gang violence in the U.S. is drug-related. Um, most of the shootings in our cities um, are drug-related through gangs. And the reason they're in business is because there's demand for the product. If demand for the product goes way down because people are on these GLP-1s and they don't need crack or heroin or trank or fentanyl or whatever it is, and, it's, and the market dries up, then there's no violence over it because there's no trade in it to begin with. Um, so that should go down. And it's funny that the combination of legal weed and GLP-1s may end up putting the cartels out of business, right? Who, who, who would have predicted um, that's what would do it? In fact, as, as you know, I once wrote a, a pilot about a campaign that the cartels were running to stop the legalization of weed in Illinois. Um, maybe what they should be doing is stopping the legalization of, of GLP-1s, right? That, that may be their <laughs> biggest threat. Um, 
number of people in prison should go way down because again, a huge number of people in jail are there either because they're addicts and committed a crime they're sent to jail or they are involved in the drug business in some way um, and that you know put them in jail. Um, and on one hand, that's fantastic, right? Because we have a mass incarceration problem in this country, uh, and especially we have a generation of African American men who are, you know, just automatically way behind the eight ball because so many of them, you know, are spending part of their early lives in prison and then just disadvantaged for the rest of their lives. Um, but also, I know this from when I was in Illinois, prisons for rural communities are the main economic driver, right? Like we had five empty, unused prisons when I was there, and we couldn't close them down all the way because they were... Why were they empty? Because crime went down heavily in the 90s. Right. We had less prisoners than right. we had projected, so we didn't need them. But Did, the did they close any of them eventually? I think eventually a couple closed, but like right. we still had like at least a basic crew at all of them because even just you need people to flush the toilets and kind of do some of the basic maintenance, but also just because politically the unions, you know... You, you, you were just devastating the town's employment. So, you know, I think people will be surprised, at least people who not, don't live in rural communities, at the significance of prisons and jails as employers um, in those communities. Um, restaurants and bars, I think we'll probably lose a lot of money. Um, booze is the profit center for everything. Most, everything. <laughs> and if there's significantly less demand, plus there could be also a lot less demand for food if people's appetites are... It's funny. I, I definitely get the feeling that there is a... The step down in booze. I mean, it, it's it's close to home. Maybe the maybe out there in the world, it's not happening as much. But the the it feels like we're we're nearing a, a, a like a tipping point on on booze in this country, which which is very good, right? Yeah. Because you know the, the studies have been showing the last couple of years this notion that like a glass of wine a day is good for you is bullshit. Like <laughs> exactly, all alcohol is very bad for you. Yep. Alcohol is poison. Um, and it doesn't mean that people can't choose to drink it. You're just choosing to make your house worse and you should try to offset it in other ways. Um, but again, society would just be healthier. Just like society is inherently healthier. Fewer people smoke cigarettes. Society is inherently healthier. if People don't drink. Alcohol. Right. And I guess that's the message that's finally, I mean, there have been people saying it all along, but but just like there were with cigarettes, there were people saying it was unhealthy long before the Surgeon General got involved. Right. But but here's the difference. I think so cigarettes are this thing that they do provide a form of relief. Right. Right. But ultimately, it's much more of an addiction, a disgusting addiction than anything else. And so people can kind of intellectually understand that they're better off without it if they can avoid it. And so when it stopped becoming as much of a cool thing for teenagers to do and it didn't breed generations of addicts, um, that plus all of the laws and litigation, regulatory changes and everything else was able to really dramatically cut um, the impact. Whereas alcohol and drugs, you know, provide this immediate emotional relief, right? And people have tremendous amounts of stress and anxiety in their lives, and partly because how we're wired evolutionary, evolutionarily. So um, the, you know, I don't, I think this is where the GLP ones are so important, which is you can understand intellectually that alcohol is really bad for you, but your need for that escape and relief doesn't, isn't mitigated by that. But if it's mitigated by taking the GLP ones because you just have no craving for it, right, um, then that does have a meaningful impact. So, I don't think knowledge of in and of itself is enough. Is enough, but I think knowledge plus drug medicine could. Um, 
I think that a bunch of new jobs and industries are going to pop up around servicing the GOP sector that we don't know what they are yet. Um, but that happens in every single new industry. So, you know, they call it picks and shovels and my line of work. Um, tourism, I think, in some ways could go down, at least places like Las Vegas. Um, I think gambling seems to be another sort of beneficiary of, of, of GLP ones. Um, casinos will suffer. What do you think? Do you think that is your view that casino gambling is 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 driven by problem gambling? You think people won't want to gamble it's just a little, for a little enjoyment? Bit of both. Is there is it it's, is enjoyable gambling related to I, I a think problem? It's, I think it's this. So last night I was having dinner. We we're having Thai food, and halfway through my noodles, I was like, "Yeah, I'm good." And I just didn't eat the rest of them um, because I was full and didn't Probably eat one them. of the first times in your life that's ever happened. Correct, <laughs> correct. And so people might still sit down at the slot machine, but if they're if they all walk in saying, "My limit is I can lose two hundred dollars," then they end up losing eight hundred. I think they can just walk away after two hundred, right? Um, so I think that Delta is where the casinos make their money. Right. Um, yeah. And that's a good point. same thing with sports betting, whatever else. Um, I think drunk driving will decrease materially. In fact, you could have a world where if people are drinking less because of GLP ones, plus eventually self-driving cars replacing, um, regular vehicles, you could get to a world where there just is no drunk driving, um, which would be pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Well, that's, that brings us together with your, um. Your Phoenix adventure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, last few, so, you know, um, fast food industry, it, I don't, there's, there's two ways to go on this one. One is that it, it suffers because people are like, oh, I don't need Popeyes. On the other hand, or maybe people are like, fuck it, I can eat Popeyes. Like, <laughs> I have noticed that while I haven't had a desire for sugar, I was less resistant to sugar on the trip because I was like, you know, I'm eating so little anyway. If I want to eat this piece of chocolate at the hotel put next to my bed, I might as well. What's the difference? You right. know? So maybe people go. So you ate it. I did uh, in that direction with it. Um, so, you know, uh, and then the final one is, you know, if, if they can figure out what in GLPs cause addictive behavior to change, you know, could that produce other compounds that impact other behaviors like violence and anger, right? So could this put a, a stop to domestic violence? Could it put a stop to, you know, all, all kinds of, you know, human conditions where people really mistreat each other um, that will be a lot easier to resist? Um, you know, people who are, say, perpetrators of domestic violence, and if they don't want to be, maybe they go on Ozempic, um, and they're not, right? right? So, and maybe it's not Ozempic, it's some other drug formulated in a different way, but one of the great things about AI is it ought to be able to take the knowledge that they have from what GLP ones do and through simulated testing, and part of it can depend on what the FDA allows and doesn't allow in simulated testing, um, come up with other solutions pretty quickly. Let me can I ask you two questions about yeah. this? Or you do you have more that you want no, to say? No, that's it. That was my question. Okay, so the, so the two questions are so you've sketched this out. How do you feel on a kind of conviction level? Just I, I realize it's like a gut call, like you don't have any scientific insight that's much greater than other people's necessarily. But do you think this is the way it's going to play out? Yes. Okay. Because I believe in science and I believe in technology, mm -hmm. right? Like you can't be a venture capitalist if you don't believe in those two things. Um, and therefore, I think technology always wins. And if there is a product that ultimately makes like statins, right? So it went from being something that um, people took because they had actual heart problems 
to now, when I before I turn right before fifty, my doctor's like, you should just take a statin, and I do. Hey, Matt, do you take one? Nope. Okay. Um, but um, it, it, it a lot of my friends do, and not because they had specifically indicators of heart problems, but just because their doctors were like, this is a preventative thing with extremely little downside right. uh, and significant upside. Um, I, I think this will ultimately become the same thing, and it will just become a norm. Now, I know we're also in a weird world where we're anti-vaccine and all this stuff, so maybe some people will choose not to do it. Not to do it. Um, well, here's the other yeah. question. So, so in our lifetime, in our sort of particularly in our adult lifetime, um, there's been a, a huge upsurge of uh, mental health drugs, while there also seems to be a huge upsurge in mental health crisis, that these things happen more or less simultaneous to each other. So you had a, like, you know, 40 years ago, you did not have this incredible range of drugs to treat all these things. Yeah. And yet none of these things seem to have gone away. Well, no, but I guess it's also... Would they just be far, far worse if, like, we didn't have They could these... be far worse, but also we keep making the world more and more anxiety-ridden, right? Like... Do you think that's true? Yeah, fucking social media and the internet and fucking TV news and the polarization of our politics and the lack of trust in institutions. Do you think day-to-day -day life and, in, in the world is just inherently more anxiety-producing than it used to be? I think that there's a lot of things that add stress. So it's, it's an interesting contradiction, and we've talked about this on this podcast a lot, because in a lot of ways the world is exponentially better. I mean, even forget about that, like it's better in sub-Saharan Africa or in Southeast Asia. Um, I ran an article in the Atlantic sometime in the last year that just, you know, we always talk about how like, the middle class was so much better off in 1957. But like when you actually look at what the middle class today has in terms of the size of their homes, their appliances, their vehicle, every, like their lives are much better today, right? right? That, that's not true at all. Um, in fact, it's even weird to go back to the 1990s and see how much like general life in America has improved in like 30 years. Yeah. I mean, like it's not... It, you see stuff from the 90s, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, right. But at the same time, I think these things aren't all linear and correlated, right? right? So you can have economic and productivity and lifestyle gains. You could have longevity gains, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have exacerbation of mental health problems at the same time. Um, and so, you know, I think that we're in this parity of discovery, right? And oftentimes when you... Just when you when you look under the hood, you're gonna come learn about problems. You're gonna develop solutions. And you're gonna learn about more problems. But that's that's the only way to get to progress. Do you want to do the next hard yeah. pivot? Yeah. Um, now I'm gonna make. You, you, had just, you read the story? I, I just read it when I didn't. But you, didn't, see you it. hadn't seen it. I hadn't seen it before you mentioned it. But uh, I'm. Gonna, did you find it interesting? I did. I found yeah. it really interesting. But I'm gonna have you describe it. And the reason I'm gonna have you describe it because I don't want to try to pronounce this. Yeah. Russian you know, it's name. funny. So I, I kind of almost wanted you to because I'm <laughs> Russian and I think I'm still gonna fuck it up too. Oh, really? Because you're pretty good with names. I realize, like you know, like you're you're much better than I am. So Dmitry Rybovalev, I think is how you say the guy's yeah, name. Yeah, that, that was good. See, um, you didn't. Nice so, job. So he's a Russian oligarch. Right. Um, you know, it seems like a very typical mid-level Russian oligarch. Yeah, bad guy kind of. Yeah. And the Times had this fascinating story that he's suing his art advisor for fraud. And what he's saying, which his claim sounded right to me, is effectively the art advisor would say to him, like, oh, you need to have this Medigliani for your collection to complete it. And I can, there's one, I think that this guy is willing to, because it's not like an open market for it. It's like, right. but I know this guy and he's maybe willing to sell it because he wants to buy a Picasso or whatever it is. And let me see how much he would want to part with it. And, come back and, say, and he's 83 million. 
And in reality, the art advisor was buying it from the same guy for $40 million, yeah. fl- doubling it and flipping it to his own client. I mean, this has got to happen all the time, million, right? Right. Yeah. And this happened apparently with, with four works, a Medigliani, a Da Vinci, uh, a Klimt, and a Magritte, obviously. The, the, you have all of those, right, in your apartment? Um, I have some in the apartment. I have some in the house of state. Yeah. Um, I don't have any of that. Um, I actually just, I, I don't collect art. The only art that I like to collect is kind of, been such a male thing, but like big brash photography, like our, a couple of works by our friend Dave Ali. Yeah, Dave Ali. Uh, a few, a few things like that. Um, but I, those are, those are. A f- you well, know, you just enjoy them. You don't. I, you're I just really enjoy them, and, and they're not that expensive. Um, so, um, so, so here's here. So the article was about like, oh, here's this interesting case, and how are they going to rule? And I, I kind of have a different question, which is okay. Why the fuck should this guy be allowed to sue at all, right? Like, I think the case should be dismissed because I think that, like, this is a world where you have tons of money sloshing around, often from people who use questionable means to make it. The oligarch definitely use questionable means to make it. Right. That makes it easy for the people on the other side of the equation, the dealers, the advisors, the auction houses, to justify to themselves stealing it because they're like, well, fuck this guy. Right. They stole it from the Russian people. So who cares if I get some of it? Um, it is completely unregulated. It's completely opaque. It's completely subjective, and it's totally dependent on status and prestige, right. which is also completely subjective. Right. Right. It would seem to me that if you enter that world, you're on your fucking own, man. And there shouldn't like you can't then go to court and say I was ripped off. You entered the fucking hornet's nest, snake lion's den, snake pit, whatever it is, and like you get whatever's coming to you, and don't waste the court's time now whining that you were defrauded. Um, and I would say that there are markets that perhaps should be unregulated, and the art market should just, just be before we unregulated. move away from the art market. Let me ask. So I, I assume you 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 tried this theory out on our friend Laurel, who's who's uh, much closer to the art market than yeah, yeah. you are. Yeah, she, she agreed. Yeah, Laurel ran the mat, right? right. She ran the, the business and the operations of Metal Museum of Art. She helped me kind of make this list of oh, she did. Of, okay, of all the ways that it was. Uh, oh, I thought she might take the other side of this, but no. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I in fact invited her on to to make her case. She wouldn't do it. She said no. You um, should have told me. I would. I would have added my said, vote. Um, but uh, but but no. She, um, you know, speaking for her, I, I would say she she certainly agreed that the conditions are such that to have an expectation of fairness is unreasonable. I don't know if she would say that there shouldn't be legal recourse. I'm saying that there should not be. Okay. Le- legal recourse. Now, look, this is also a market that like no one's sympathetic. Everybody's scummy. Who gives a shit what happens to any of these people, right? Like the dealers are scumbag, the oligarchs are scumbag. You know, they're all. Scumbags. But you still, you still, you still have a right to protection under the law. Even I don't if think you're you a scumbag, should. You know, uh, I, I, I think I that mean, if you voluntarily choose to end, I think there's a world of caveat I'm tour. If you voluntarily choose to, no one is forced. No one put a gun to this guy's head and said you must buy him a Digliani, right? It was his fucking ego, right? And because he has too much money, because he stole it from the Russian people. Right. And so like, okay. screw you. Okay. So then the question was, you know, what are crypto? Right. In the sense of it seems to me that and we're seeing a rally in crypto. And so it's it's not going away. And yet at the same time, there's been more regulation. There's going to be more regulation. And yet it's kind of whack-a-mole. Right. Because the three of us could sit here and invent a new currency today and launch it. And like, 
then the regulators at some point have to figure it out and figure out whether we're legit and we're doing following best practices and getting licenses and everything else. And I would say maybe you take the same art approach that I just mentioned to crypto, which is to say there's two levels. There's the regulated level of crypto. These licenses, these tokens and currencies are regulated. Uh, I mean, these, these not licenses, these, these exchanges and these tokens are regulated. They are licensed. Um, we have ratings agencies, just like we do for stocks and bonds, companies and bonds and everything else, and government entities. Uh, now, I know there's corruption in rating agencies too, but let's just right. assume. Um, They're better than most things. That we will treat these like true securities, right. um, and they will be heavily regulated. And it's, you know, these 12 exchanges and these 47 tokens or whatever it is. And people can get in and out. Just people get in and out of the S&P or whatever else. Everything else, you're on your junk bonds. You're on your fucking own. So if you want to buy Dogecoin, and it's not one of the 47 licensed uh, currencies by the SEC, then like you can buy Dogecoin, but if someone steals all your money, like too fucking bad. You have no legal recourse. You have no standing. You have no right to sue. Um, you're just taking the risk. You're just jumping into any kind of get rich quick scheme um, and you're on your own. Will some people still do that anyway? Yeah, some people are inveterate gamblers, although maybe if we give them a lot of GLP ones, they would be less so. Um, but, but ultimately, I think most people would say, oh, if this is sort of effectively, you know, treated as a scam up front because the government is telling me it's a scam and there's other forms of cryptocurrency I can engage with, where you can still lose all your money, right. but that I can engage with that are at least subject to certain basic securities rules and regulations, and most people would choose to engage in the regulated market where they have some level of protection and the ability to seek recourse. So if Coinbase does something to you, you can sue them, right? Um, but if it's you know Hugo, Corey, and Bradley's bullshit crypto exchange, you know, let's start that. You can't. Um, and so I, I kind of think this notion of one, when you think of the art thing, to me, what's interesting about it is not everything has to be regulated. Sometimes there should be markets where we just say, you know what? Fuck it. It's you, you want to do this stupid thing. God bless. You're on your own. And then I think there are markets where like because it's just such a game of whack-a-mole, rather than trying to regulate the whole thing, you regulate part of it and then you feed the rest to the wolves. All right. Okay. I, I mean, it's it's a good it's a good theory. It's, I I think it's maybe something you should try out in in novelistic form. That's what I think. Uh, it could be interesting to do that, right? Yeah. So uh, we have two we have two little extras, and then we're gonna let everyone yeah. go. Um, Bradley's now checking his phone though, which no is no, no I'm checking to, to find no no right. I'm checking it because it's it's for oh. this this section specifically the Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah question? yeah oh you're yeah. finding something so uh, there's two things we're going to talk about the two little 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 extra bits here one Bradley asked me to ask him about Arnold Schwarzenegger though he didn't say why it, it's in relation to the so I got a question from a listener about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger no oh. uh, it was from uh, Sharon who, who oh yeah no I have that here yeah so read Sharon's question and I'm going to find where oh, okay. So, so our listener, Sharon Waters, um, uh, wrote in and she asked, hi, can you give me advice? Can you give advice in a future Tuesday episode about how to find make time to read so much? You are super busy, but read so many books. Tips beyond bailing if you're not hooked in the first 40 pages. I read a ton of news, but want to read more books in 2024. Thanks and Happy New Year, Sharon Waters. Um, so how can you enlighten her? Yeah, I'd say a few things. So one is look, partly I just happen to read fast, right? So like... 
just I'll process more information more quickly than than other people might. And so if I read 64 books last year, that may not be a realistic goal for, for somebody else. Fine, right? Um, and also, I just generally work fast. So I think I get through all the other stuff I need to do faster than most people, which then leaves me more time for reading, number one. Number two is I prioritize it, right? So I, I make sure that I read every day. Um, and part of it is that, is that I, you know, even though we're sitting here in the, in the bookstore that I own, I also read a lot on my phone and Kindle because I like to be able to read in transit. So if I'm Did you on, finish The Beasting, by the way? Yeah. And did you like it? Yeah, very much. I only, I only got through the first part. I haven't abandoned it, but I didn't. Very worthwhile. Okay. I thought. I thought. All right. Um, I'm going to keep going. And, uh, and so I put myself in a position where I can read um, at all kinds of random moments. And so when you, the, when you might be using that time to scroll through social media or check your email or whatever it is, um, I'm probably nailing, getting 10, 12 pages of a book read and, you know, that just that little by little that that adds up. So part of it is prioritizing it and facilitating it. Now, look, if you love only reading a hardback book, which I hope is true, because we'd sell more books here if that were the case, um, you just have to carry around with you. I don't care. I hate carrying a bag. Yeah, so you never carry a bag. I don't carry a bag. So for me, carrying around. What age did you stop ever carrying a bag? Whenever I didn't need a book bag for school anymore. Um, and um, so therefore, I don't carry a physical book. Um, but. Uh, if you carry a bag, then you can obviously just carry a physical book with you. So either way, so that's that. But the other thing is this, is more broadly, so two, one is Sharon says she watches or she consumes a lot of news, right? Yeah, that's what she said. My guess is she could probably cut that by 50% and still be just as well-informed. Yeah. Um, you know, Corey's nodding his head because Corey's a comms professional. You worked in the media for most of your career. So I think you guys both, either of you disagree? Could, could you, here, I'm going to put... Put Corey's mic on so he can answer. What do you think, Corey? That was the, oh, that was the first thing that came to mind. I don't have the Twitter app on my phone, and if on the weekends I log myself out of it to reduce the time I spend, but it's it's trash, it's garbage. It, the, the, I refresh the New York Times in the morning, see if there's something there. But like I have this book, Bradley, for an author we're going to have on Firewall in a couple of weeks, and the trick that works for me is. Every day I just say, I'm just going to read. You set a goal. I just see where the next chapter is, if it's like 30 pages or something. Because mm -hmm. I always think, oh, I'm so busy. Oh, I have to walk the dog. Oh, I have to do this at home. But if I just say, oh, every day I'm going to read like 25 to 50 pages, I can do it in like 20 minutes. And I'm like, I could do double this. I could do more of this. You just have to set the goal. For me, what, what works is setting a goal that afternoon, that morning, that day, that night. And you do it and you're like, wow, I could cut back on so many other useless things I do all day and squeeze in lots more more book reading. Once you set a goal, it's very right. evident that you can cut useless yeah. stuff out of your life. And, and then the third thing would be, I would say, it's just like, I I, try, I don't waste time on stupid shit, right? I, I, I'm, I don't use Twitter. Uh, I don't use TikTok, although Abby and I did do a fun yeah, TikTok. Yeah, you're on TikTok. So I, I have. So there's a Phoebe Bridger song called Kyoto. Um, and and there's, there, we were in Kyoto, and there's some sort of TikTok trend with daughters and fathers where the father lip syncs the song uh -huh. in front of all of the locations in the song. So, like, we, we filmed in front of a temple, an arcade, a 7 Eleven, a, a bullet train, a phone booth, uh, a desk. Um, it's cringeworthy beyond belief. It wasn't but, that bad. But it was have... cute. You, you, it was, it was, um, 
My, my, it, it, it won approval in our household. How did you see it? You follow Abby on TikTok? No, of course I don't. No, That'd my kids, crazy. my kids saw it. Um, and they showed it to you and like, look at what the hell this is. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, look at what a great dad Abby has. <laughs> yeah. Look what an asshole this guy is. Um, <laughs> they did not say that for the record. The, uh, so I, 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 so I did use TikTok, but, but overall I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on Instagram. I'm not on YouTube. Uh, I don't just like surf the internet mindlessly. Uh, I save tremendous amount of time. I, I don't watch. By the way, I, I read four or five newspapers a day, um, but I watch zero um, cable news. Zero, zero, zero. Unless it's like election right. night, um, zero. Or if right? there's a huge storm, like right. a huge snowstorm. Yeah, that's about it, right? But, two times I do right, it. Right, but these fucking morons telling me what they think. Like, yeah. so, um, so I, and I, I, so. I limit my consumption of a lot of other stuff, and I replace that with reading books. And the reason that I want to conclude with our friend Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, here we go. The so cherry Arnold, on top. Arnold has a new book. I'm a big fan of Arnold. Okay. Uh, he has a new book out called Be Useful, and it's kind of a self-help book. And I would heard him on Steve Levitt's podcast, uh, People I Mostly Admire. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I thought it was really interesting. So I, I got the book, and... He had a section on time and people basically, because this is a guy who's been like to three major careers, right? He was Mr. Universe, huge movie star, governor of California, right? And like did them all. And each time with people telling him you could, you'll never achieve it, right? right. Um, and, and he did it every single time. And so it's sort of his tips to life. And look, a lot of them are similar to my philosophies. So like right. it, it resonates well with me and therefore makes, you know, gives me validation. But um, there was a chapter, chapter three is called Work Your Ass Off. And I was, be before I s realized Sharon's email, I was highlighting the Schwarzenegger book. Um, and this is not specific to Sharon, but just his, his advice. I'm just going to end this reading his advice to... Um, to this issue. So um, one, uh, not surprisingly, people complain the most about not having enough time to do the least, enough time to do the least amount of work. Two, busyness is bullshit. Like when everyone says I'm just too busy, like, no, you're not. You're just too unorganized or inefficient or lazy. Um, if it matters to you, make the time. Whether it's a matter of getting into flow state or not, what every person who gets shit done has in common is that they either find the time, make the time, or turn the time they do have into what it needs to be for them to accomplish the task in front of them. Um, do you know how many times people tell me they don't have time to work out, and then I ask them to take out their phones and show me their screen time stats, and it says they spent three and a half hours on social media. It's not the hours in the day you lack, it's a vision for your life that makes time irrelevant. Um, two more. After all this stuff, and so he takes a 24 hour day and says, okay, sleep eight, work eight, hour and a half for commuting, hour for physical activity, three with your family and kids, whatever it is. His, his point is there's still two hours left. So after all of this stuff in a, in a typical daily life to account for, there are still two hours left in the day to make progress towards your vision, right? So when people ask me, like, how do you write books with everything else you do? Those two hours go to writing, you yeah, know, right. every day. Um, and the last one was my favorite. Turn your TV off, throw your machines out the window, save your excuses for someone who cares, get to work. Uh, nice. Let's leave it at that. Good message for 2024. Thanks All right. For See you next week. 
Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNTNet, where home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.